Today we're talking about content warnings, and I guess this is going to be like, we're not really debating whether we should use them, because I think we're both agreed that we should, but I think we're going to kind of roll through the the merits of them, and also there is some backlash against them in the psychology community, uh, and that's I think that's going to be really interesting to talk about. So let's go ahead and say each one time when content warnings have been helpful for us. I find them helpful on, on podcasts and longer form media when I have to make a choice about how I'm going to spend the next hour and a half of my life. I, I really enjoy them on things like that. Yeah, we had been talking the last time that we did a Zoom thing about how, you know, surprising somebody with... The, the mention of suicidal ideation or something like that would be very jarring if they were listening to a podcast while driving on the highway, something like that. So, you know, it's probably for the best that we warn people ahead of time that, especially since we're supposed to be achieving the job of amateurish therapy, yeah. you know, <laughs> we're, <laughs> we're supposed to be trying to help people yeah. and, um, and it is a good way to help people. And, and I think that if somebody is tuning into a show where therapy is discussed openly, then there's a little bit of that sort of content to be expected. And hopefully they're not in the mindset where they're going to want to avoid it. But also there are certain things that you are going to want to avoid and I think you should be warned about it, especially if it's something like listening to a podcast, which can just be recreational. So you don't want to surprise anybody too, too much. Yeah, and they're recreational and they can also, they can meander to some extent. So we can start with one topic that we might think this will be a fairly above board therapeutic topic and we might just follow down that rabbit hole into something that after the fact we realize, oh, we should probably... Like there might not be a logical line between those two topics. We got there, but that might not be apparent by the episode description. So it might be good to slip something in there to say at some point we cover suicide. So that's always my feeling about like the driving and stuff. It's like if you're – you never know where somebody is when they're listening. And if somebody has a panic attack in the Sumner Tunnel, that's going to be a, a terrible experience. And I'd love to be able to prevent that. Oh, absolutely. Now, there's a study that I read that talked about the um, – A – Content warnings or trigger warnings can be ineffective, and B, they can actually be harmful to somebody who is actually who has actually suffered from trauma, because content warnings can lead to avoidance, and avoidance is something that allows PTSD to continue. And so the the point that this study was really making is that if somebody has experienced trauma. Uh, they absolutely should be seeing a therapist and learning to heal from that rather than looking out for what they can avoid. Yeah. Was that the Harvard study? Uh, yes. Yeah, I think I read that one too. And I found that actually was kind of a resounding point in a lot of different, a lot of different studies, a lot of different papers, and even just articles. Like That came up a lot, that it, anything that fostered that avoidance was going to be counterproductive right off the bat. But it kind of got me thinking, too, is that the place of whoever's creating the content to in any way decide the treatment that somebody might be choosing, you know? Well, this is, I think we're talking about the same thing. Um, they did interview a, a professor from Harvard who was in the psychology department. But it was 1,400 students. 
some were given trigger warnings and some were not. A few students excused themselves once they saw that there was a trigger warning. But ultimately, they tested things like their reading comprehension and things like their cognitive function afterwards to see if they were, you know, disassociating at all or if they were affected emotionally uh, more than the other group. And they found that there wasn't really a big discrepancy in each group. But the main point that this makes is that trigger warnings are not supposed to be a substitute for therapy. And that, you know, a lot of existing psychological literature about trauma suggests that avoidance is a coping mechanism that maintains the traumatic stress. So that's a very important thing to keep in mind um, as you're listening to us right now. We're going to try to avoid giving you a panic attack. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But we're not trying to encourage you to avoid any kind of thinking that would lead you to confront your trauma head on if if it's there. Yeah, that to me is is the core of these. I mean, there's the science is almost immaterial compared to just the respect that you're giving somebody by kind of giving them a heads up in the right circumstances. That was yeah. that's always been my biggest takeaway with the whole concept of content warnings is just it's a kind of a laissez-faire approach to just saying, I don't know what you're going through specifically. I don't know what you're doing about it or not doing about it. Like, that's completely your call. But I'm about to do this, and I don't want to hurt you, basically. Right. And and that my thinking about this has changed a little bit over the, over the past year or two. I remember when content warnings first started to be a part of mainstream social media and... My first thought was, well, why give a content warning? Because really what you're saying to somebody is, if you have experienced trauma, don't read this. When, in fact, you should be saying to that person, if you have experienced trauma, seek therapy. And then I kind of realized, like, well, this is social media. This isn't really the platform for that. So I'll be on on this side. It seems like the right thing to do. Like, as you said, regardless of scientific evidence, how can we take care of each other? And I think we often don't do that enough on social media when we're distant from one another. So I kind of came around to that side. And then when reading this study, I was like, okay, yeah, I I guess my instincts were right at first, kind of. But I also firmly agree that, like, you should warn somebody. You you should ask somebody, are you in the right headspace right now to talk about this thing? It's like asking for consent to like be a part of somebody's mind in a way. Yeah, no, totally. Because it really all just comes down to consent. I mean, that that's completely what it is. You're just giving that person, at least theoretically, you're giving them that out where they can choose to scroll by it as opposed to you've you've sprung something on them. But I think the medium matters a lot to that end too. Like social media will be there's a different way of navigating that than there might be at a live event, than there might be on a podcast or a movie. And even the promotion of whatever it is or lack of promotion of whatever it is kind of factors in. So that's, to me, why it's such a complicated issue to decide objectively whether it's right or wrong. Because again, I feel it's right personally just because of the the lack of hands-on that it has. But like at the same time, I have felt like sometimes content warnings have made it worse for me just as a bearer of trauma. You know, it's like there have been times where it's actually made it a little bit more pointed than I felt like it needed to be from my experience. And especially with live events, I feel like it actually does the opposite. If there is no content warning and I find myself feeling overcome by panic during somebody's song and I get up to go grab a smoke, 
nobody's going to look at me twice. They just are going to assume that I'm going to grab a smoke. But if somebody says like, hey, this is your out, which I've seen a few times and I, I, I respect it and I, I think it's coming from a good place, but I've always felt like, well, now I'm pinned down because if I stand up even to go to the bathroom right now, I've just sort of raised my hand and said like, I have this going on in my life. And nine times out of 10, it's something I don't want to talk about if it's something that I would like to be warned about, you know? Yeah, I'd say that most of the time when I'm listening to a podcast or or something like that, or, um, you know, we talked about that uh, meditation mindfulness series that I was listening to about self-therapy. And it was so many times during my listening to that, I was like, oh, my God, get out of here. You are speaking such truth to me, (laughs) you know? And, like, those moments mean so much to me. The moments of empathy that you get when somebody is talking about trauma that you've experienced and it's kind of put into broader terms and and you can hear it outside of your own mind for a minute. Those are really, really important moments, but sometimes those moments aren't going to fuck you up. So I think it's important to let people know when to expect them, especially if they're on the darker side of things. Yeah. It's, it's such a moving target though. It's really, cause it also, it almost matters too, like the venue, like the company that you're in, there are times that catharsis, if I'm alone, it's the best thing in the world. But if I'm next to somebody else or in a crowd, I just react twice as harshly to just try to push it all down until I get home or something or until I get into my car. So that's why it doesn't seem like to me there's a perfect way to do this. It just seems like just creating a little space, however you can, kind of surreptitiously, is the way to go. I just realized that I never answered the question myself. Uh, <laughs> when, when have content warnings been beneficial to me? Uh, and I, I can't think of a specific time, but I, I will say that, like, during winter, I will actively avoid any, like, film or television show or, or even, even literature that deals too heavily with death. Yep. Um, because that's just when I can't be alone with that thought. Or that that's when that thought is more likely to evolve into an anxiety and, and not just remain a thought. So as we've said, like around Thanksgiving, that's when that, <laughs> that's the kind of when my cutoff is. But I'd yeah. really love to learn how to how to be with that specific type of anxiety a little bit better, because I think like I'm not always great at it when it comes to health anxiety or when it comes to generalized anxiety or work anxiety, you know, but I think for most of the different kinds of stresses that I feel, I'm able to be with the anxiety and I'm able to kind of like have it accompany me, but not overwhelm me. And with death anxiety, that has always been impossible for me. Once it turns into a real anxiety, it turns into panic. And I don't know. I think that has a lot to do with the time of year. And I think that has a lot to do with the time of day that those thoughts happen and it's typically when you're more alone so i wouldn't necessarily say that that's been helpful but that is something that has allowed me to practice avoidance and as we were just saying that's not the healthiest thing but as far as remaining a functional human in the winter that avoidance definitely aids me yeah. in some way avoidance is a tool too i mean it's i think it's got a bad rap because it doesn't solve anything, but it does definitely stop things from getting worse temporarily in the right measure. You know, like it's, 
I remember thinking that a lot when the quarantine started. I, th- I think you and I might have talked about this at one point, just at least on the phone, but just about like, are you going to be spending this making a record or, you know, are you going to basically go to that place? And my position still is that like, I have to feel safe enough to let everything unravel. And there's certain times of year, certain times of day, just certain headspaces. I can just wake up and tell like, I'm going to be up against it today. And this is maybe not a good day to start poking at those existential things because it's just not going to be fun. It's not going to be helpful in any way. So I'll avoid it. And I'm not working through the problem by doing that. But at the same time, it's kind of a tactical retreat, you know, like just sort of realizing there's no hope in hell that I'm going to win this today. So let's not fight this so I don't lose everything else. But also, I think there's a lot of value in flipping the script. And a big part of the whole quarantine for me has been the first month or so I was very, very productive. And then once it started to get a little bit more real, I thought, oh, no, I'm going to be quarantined and I'm going to be stuck here. Yeah. And then I put a lot of work into changing the definition of here. And so I did some remodeling, new coat of paint, some furniture from the side of the road, stuff like that. And just, you know, make yourself a little bit more comfortable in your living space. And I think that that works figuratively as well. And that's just learning to perceive your anxiety in a different way and giving it a different name and and learning to learning that it's something that you're acquainted with and not something that's necessarily a part of you. That's an important distinction. I actually am catching that all the time now since you brought it up last time we talked about even just defining, um, instead of saying like, I am anxious or I am depressed, just saying that I, I have those things or I am with anxiety right now. I've just, I never realized how often I just define myself by those things and just because it, it flows off the tongue easier. And it's, uh, I think you start believing those things after a while, you know, it's, it's easy to. You do. Absolutely. And it's funny, man. Like I've been thinking about this a lot because my anxiety has been kind of high in the past couple weeks. Oh, I'm with you. And it's it's mostly been and usually when I have health anxiety, it's usually pretty irrational. But the difference is that right now is a very rational time to have health anxiety, especially if you've been like unmasked in front of somebody. Oh my god. Or yeah. especially, you know, like if you think that you've been put in any danger and let's face it, you could be if you just go to the grocery store. So, it's like it's a very rational anxiety to have. And so usually when I'm thinking to myself like, oh no, I have insert disease here. You know, I can usually talk myself back from that. But, you know, now it's, okay, I might be getting short of breath. I might have a sore throat. I might have, like humidity makes my nose really stuffy. Yeah, me too. So yeah. I, I always <laughs> think that I'm that I'm sick anyway Yeah. when I wake up in the morning. And that's like when I think when a lot of people, when they're most prone to anxiety, it's first thing in the morning when blood pressure is naturally higher or it's late at night when your defenses are the most down. Is that why the morning's bad if your blood pressure's up? Yeah. That's crazy. Yeah, because I've been wondering that. Like the last week, mornings are horrendous. My first waking thought is usually a freaking nightmare. And I've always wondered why that is because I haven't had a chance to construct any notion about what the day is going to be. So, Yeah, so like now I'm in, I'm in this place where it, it takes me a little while to wake up or maybe I feel a little bit groggier in the morning and I'm thinking to myself, okay, is this a fever? And And then I just kind of have to like maintain some level-headedness until I can 
you know, get half a cup of coffee in me and and realize that no, this is just how I feel every morning, and that's really depressing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I've had the exact same kind of the exact same thought process because it's also yeah because it's hot. You know, I'll I'll just start feeling hot like right now it is about 110 degrees in here but it's cooler outside so every time i realize that i'm like oh god i'm like sweating like i must have a fever like no it's just you're in a chamber full of electronics you're gonna be sweating like it's such an interesting time to study anxiety when it is founded because you know how when you're taught about it in some ways they they use that saber-toothed tiger example or something to explain the fight or flight like that was the one that i was always told at least of like there was a time when this was way more relevant to the day of a human being. Like you needed to process fight or flight constantly throughout your day because it would literally be, you would get into a fight with something that could mortally wound you or you would fly the hell away from it. And so much of our anxiety is, is not founded, but it's from that same amygdala place, that feeling at least. And now it's just like the reintroduction of the tiger. If you're a hypochondriac and I completely am. And so it's been such a trip to kind of be seeing like, oh, this is way worse when there is actually a threat. Like this isn't nearly as useful as I thought it was, but it's also it's like, no, I just need to kind of learn how to wrangle this a little bit better now because maybe it could be a good helping tool if you can use it. But it's also, yeah, I get terrified every time I go to the grocery store and I feel kind of crappy the next day or something or but I'll realize, well, I feel crappy every day. Like I just, I'm allergic to everything and I'm frail <laughs> as hell. That's like how it goes. <laughs> so it's, been, it's kind of been neat to see where those lines happen. So Richard McNally is a professor and director of clinical training in psychology at Harvard. And he was the one who was kind of against the content warnings in this study. And he said this, trigger warnings are counter-therapeutic because they encourage avoidance of reminders of trauma and avoidance maintains PTSD. Severe emotional reactions triggered by course material. This, this study was specific to like content warnings given in, in syllabi, course curricula and stuff like that uh, at the college level. So severe emotional reactions triggered by course material are a sign that students need to prioritize their mental health and obtain evidence-based cognitive behavioral therapies that will help them overcome PTSD. So rather than issuing trigger warnings, universities can best serve students by facilitating access to effective and proven treatments for PTSD and other mental health problems. So because we're often pretty terrible at recognizing what the problem is in the first place. We just know how we, we react to it, but we might not know what the actual trauma is. And so, like, because trauma is the way that your mind and body react to something, it can help to seek the professional help to get to the root of what that trauma was in the first place and learn why you react that way, rather than avoiding the reaction. Um, and so I think that we can kind of play both sides by allowing people to avoid when they need to avoid, practice avoidance when they need to practice avoidance, but also at, at the same time encourage, like you should be going to the proper channels. You should listen to us, definitely, because it'll be fun, but you should absolutely <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> go through the proper channels as well and do what you can to find a therapist that will work with you to get to the root of that trauma. I mean, I, I agree on a like a theoretical level with what he's saying. Like, it makes sense to me that 
it wouldn't be helping anybody in a therapeutic way to be avoiding these things, to be creating a culture of avoidance and stuff like that. But the culture like isn't set up for that yet to be treating that. And I don't think that a content warning system is necessarily the end result of like, we've gotten our act together and we're doing well as a society and this is how we handle mental health. But for the current state of things, it might be a necessary holding pattern to just not be hurting people while we're trying to set up the infrastructure that we need to actually help people. Well, it's also important to to mention that he's talking about in a university setting. And so like he's he's referencing the mental health counseling services that Harvard University would offer. And most of us do not have the luxury of having those counseling services at our disposal. It's, it can be hard to find time to, you know, to take time away from work, to take time away from your everyday responsibilities, to find time for counseling. Yeah. Um, I kind of have no excuse. (laughs) (laughs) And that's what I was going to say is that, you know, for me, a lot of what I have learned about myself and about the traumas that I have had have come from listening to podcasts and really ruminating on what I've heard. And it shouldn't be the be-all, end-all, but that's, I think, still the phase that I'm in of doing the work is that, like, I've followed kind of, like, we had just listened to that Pete Holmes podcast, and I've kind of followed his journey a little bit, and I've learned a lot about you know, how to reclaim certain teachings and certain events of my life under my own purview and not no longer perceive them as something that was like done to me, but something that I lived through and can now learn from. And that has been its own form of therapy for me, for sure. But I have always procrastinated and and delayed in seeing an actual therapist. And I, I do think that that would be truly beneficial for me. But that's not to say that I'm not doing the work. So it works in a way, but it could work better. And it's so, it's tricky. I hear that argument with a lot of issues about like we should be prioritizing mental health and stuff. But it's true that I think a lot more people would be if the circumstances were such that they were able to without having to take time off or if it weren't trauma-based in some cases where it's just, it takes a certain mindset and a certain kind of, deep breath to go to that place and stay there for a sustained amount of time. Like it's, I don't know. I think that's something that can't really be overstated when it comes to these types of issues that everybody kind of is moving at a different speed and there's no real shame. And even in just dragging your feet, getting there, like it's, that's happening for a reason. Like there's something that's making you kind of do that or where your circumstances are just not working out quite yet. And it's it's hard because it's not quite like a physical injury in that way, where if a bone is broken, something has been severed and a piece of you is no longer working. It's like it, it's difficult because you can kind of tough it out, for lack of a better expression, through a lot of stuff and not necessarily show it. So you can sort of start to, you can live a life with a lot of stuff that people shouldn't have to live with every day. So I guess if I could sum up like how I feel about this whole content warning thing, from my personal perspective, I would say there are a lot of things that trigger anxiety in me. And a lot of the time when I hear people talk about those things and I hear it talked about in more in broader and more universal language, it often does sit with me very well. And it often is inspiring to me to have a new perspective on that thing, to have a new way to think about it. But 
we can't always guarantee that a listener is going to be in a safe space when they hear the thing that triggers them. Yeah, definitely. So what I'm thinking about when I'm thinking about winter and, and death anxiety is, okay, is there ever a moment during the winter, during like a time of, a time of year that I really truly love, but a time of year that is challenging for me mentally once it gets to a certain point, is there ever a moment when I'm in the right space? to be able to address these things or just to be able to listen to these things. And so like in that sense, I think that there's a virtue to avoidance and avoidance in that sense can just mean that you want to be able to function adequately and that it's going to be hard for you to be in the right space, in a safe space and or with the right people or able to practice the right kind of mindfulness wherever you are and whatever else you're thinking about. So that's why I think content warnings are going to be very important. At the same time, I completely agree with Dr. McNally, but he is talking about this from the perspective of somebody whose community has access to counseling right there on campus. And we are talking about this from the perspectives of our listeners are going to be distant and we can't like directly give them help. We can just talk about the things that might help them. But if they're not in the right space, if they're not a quarter mile from a counselor's office, then it might not be the right time for them to hear what we have to say. I mean, I think stuff like content warnings makes it a bit of a Venn diagram between those two worlds as opposed to having them just be separate parallel universes in a way because it lets you bookmark an idea or a conversation you can just kind of dog ear it and say like i might come back to this and i think that's also one of the reasons it gets a pejorative connotation sometimes it's just that cause i've heard it like said a lot about you know the whole like snowflake thing like every time somebody's like oh that's you know it's just making people weaker and all. it's like it's like there's this wall between those two by like warning somebody about it it's like well they're never going to go in there it's like a force field or something but I think it can be, and often is, a lot more of a malleable thing. It's just, yeah, you're just buying somebody time, basically. You're just letting them choose when to go into that that room as opposed to saying this is about something that's going to trigger you, so never come in here. It's completely interpretive. It's just you have to leave that interpretation up to the person who's actually going to have to bear that burden. Maybe there are different sort of uh, subsets of content warning necessities that we should be thinking about. I'm not really sure. Yeah. Um, one thing I found was interesting, actually, in the the reading I was doing was I was looking up basically kind of how to write them. And, and there was a lot of film sources and things like that saying, like, how would you phrase this and where would you put this and stuff? And it essentially always boiled down to it's anytime there are elements – like disturbing elements specifically that are not going to be expected in that genre. And that seemed to be the the most broad strokes, just this is the line. And I found that kind of interesting I, I, and helpful too. It takes out some of the interpretive aspect of it because that's an angle I guess we haven't talked about yet, but when is it necessary? What's that line? Because trauma is, is pretty subjective and something might throw off somebody that wouldn't touch somebody else. So I thought that this was a fairly helpful rule of thumb not a perfect system because, again, we are doing one about a lot of therapy and, and topics that fall under that realm, and we're still going to use them because I think it's it's still very applicable. But so, but all of these things would be expected in our genre on some level. 
So it's not perfect, but I think it does apply to a lot of pop culture things. You know, I've seen it addressed in, and we've we've talked about one of these, but I, I've I've seen it addressed in two very notable ways, in my experience. And uh, one was at a poetry reading, and a guy said, um, "Trauma isn't optional, and content warning shouldn't be either. Um, you you don't choose what you're affected by, especially if something was done unto you." So. There's that. There's the whole, it's not optional, and we should respect the fact that people are not always in control of their reactions. The other one that you and I have talked about is our friend Maddie Williams handled a content warning very well last year at a festival that we were playing. Um, I think she was playing a cover, but she basically said, you know, this song has some mention of suicidal ideation in it, and if you're not in a place to deal with that right now, Take a walk. Take care of yourself. Self-care is important. And, you know, it wasn't at all a throwaway line, but she did it very, very quickly and very effectively. She was just saying, before I start playing this song, I'm going to tell you what it's about, and I need everyone to be in a place where they can take care of themselves right now. Yeah. I thought she handled that great. Because it was awesome. I mean, she was genuine about it, but it was also, it was very pithy, and it was very... It just, it did its job. It did what it needed to do. And that was, I was really psyched to see that because I think that's where they can get the most murky is in a live setting. Because I've seen some people use them as preambles or preludes into, I don't know what the, what the word would be, but it's a little bit more self-involved than it is compassionate. Exactly. And it's a weird line. And in terms of a stage presence, it's a really weird line to walk, to be actually wanting to help the audience avoid that versus sort of wanting to look like a tortured artist, you know, the dagger in the chest. And and I thought she handled it perfectly. Like, she just gave everybody that out. It was not in a call-out way. Yeah, not at all. It's one of those things that can be, like, it's a thing that can easily be parodied, and it's a thing that can easily be done in earnest. But ultimately, it's a thing that needs to be done compassionately and with other people in mind. And I think because our whole platform here is that we have other people in mind. And I think that you and I expect to grow through this as well. It's just going to be very important to keep in mind everyone involved. And this is not just something for ourselves. And, you know, this show has to be didactic in some way. And in that sense, it has to be able to teach people to practice self-care in ways that they might not be currently doing. Yeah, I agree. Can you think of anything else about it that we haven't really delved into? Well, I guess we haven't really decided yet you know, how we would format a content warning. Like, do we record an intro? Do we put it in the episode notes or the description? I don't know what would be the most prudent or the most accessible way for someone to have that knowledge before listening. It may be an intro, but people skip intros. Yeah, I know. <laughs> so. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think personally, I would, if I was just consuming it, if I wasn't privy to this conversation, I would be, I would prefer it to be written in like the description or the episode notes or something like that. But that's also just kind of how I digest that information better. Because it's something I think about the specifically the words, like the words that we would be warning are going to be topics. If I hear it spoken, it just sounds way more jarring. Like the word suicide, hearing it, like if I'm in that frame of mind, would be worse than seeing it written. Well, but let's go back to our, our highway, a driving on the highway example that person is not going to be looking at the description. So if every episode starts with our theme music 
and the episodes that require a content warning have someone speaking before the theme music, then it would be out of the ordinary. And then they would know, okay, there's something to look out for here. I agree that it's more jarring that way. And I agree that just hearing the words while driving on the highway might be a little bit, uh, might run counter to what we're trying to accomplish. But I also think that there's a way to format that in sort of a, a boilerplate way or a form letter kind of way where we can address the issue but not freak anybody out. No, I like that before the, the theme music too because no one's going to skip that. Like there's no time. So they can skip right after that, but it's like if that's zero to like two, three, four seconds in, they'll get the idea. I don't know if we can get too much safer than that too without really kind of forcing it in there in a way. Because that's like that's pretty much as abrupt, as bold, and as clear as we can possibly make that point. Even if we have some redundancy in the written part of it, just to kind of cover both ends in case it skips or something, or somebody clicks halfway through or whatever. I'm definitely in favor of that. I had this Facebook argument with my old pastor from when I was a kid. <laughs> um, and we were talking about COVID and like anti-maskers and stuff. And I was basically calling anti-maskers terrorists. Right? Yeah. And <laughs> he comes at me with like, well, these are the statistics. Like the death rate is very, very low with COVID, blah, 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 whatever. And we kind of went back and forth a little bit. And the final point that I made was, well, the death rate now is very low with AIDS, man. Like, we haven't found a cure, but it's very, very treatable. You can live with AIDS. It's still illegal not to inform a partner that you have AIDS because that's not respecting their autonomy and that's not, like, getting their consent for you to be intruding into their personal space, into their body, and in turn into their mind because then they're going to have something to deal with psychologically. And so, like, any time that you infringe on somebody else's autonomy, that is an act of, if not terrorism, high-level bullying. Yeah. You yeah. know? So <laughs> terrorism might be a hyperbole here, but that was kind of the ultimate point that I was making, is that, like, if you're not cognizant of somebody else's personal space, personal comfort, personal health, and just their autonomy in general then you're committing an act against them. And that's what people who aren't wearing masks are doing. And the point that I'm getting at here really is, A, I want to brag about my big debate win against my pastor. And B, I want to say, like, that's why we need to make sure that we cover our bases, like you were just saying. Because if not, then we can end up infringing on somebody else's uh, autonomy of mind you know, if, if nothing else. And so I can, I think our main goal is just to allow everyone listening to keep their head in the right place and to keep their psychological autonomy. Yeah, definitely. So that's like, I don't think that gets really talked about a ton, but like, especially with the way things are politically right now, the way things are culturally right now, it's everybody kind of likes to just skip over the human element and jump right to the ideologies, the philosophies or whatever, theories kind of drive the ideas and especially with the anti-maskers it's like you don't have to believe any of this it could also if you think it's fake and it ends up being fake like great but 
your neighbor is wicked freaked out or the person in the grocery store is terrified or just be cool, just be a human being to that person, you know? Like, you're not winning a fight by going out without one and, and just scaring the shit out of everybody in your town. Exactly. And and that's another point that I was making is that the longer this lasts, the more the collective public is going to be traumatized. And it's going to take a long time to reassimilate into society and feel comfortable and not feel fearful of everybody around you. So in that sense, it is inflicting trauma to a certain degree. But even take trauma away from it, you're at the very least inflicting anxiety on people. Like, think about how anxious the people who are taking this seriously are feeling on a day-to-day basis. And so just like for the good of all and for the good of like the collective mental well-being, you should be taking into consideration what is making people anxious and what is forcing people to not be at their best. And also in those cases, stop taking comfort in statistics because you could be walking next to that 1% that dies or like somebody that has asthma or somebody that, you know, like just because it doesn't kill a lot of people doesn't mean it won't kill the person next to you or that kind of applies to a lot of different things. But it's just the human side of a lot of these issues that become polarizing. Yeah, and whatever that low statistic is, you drag it across the entire population of the world and that total death toll gets a lot higher. Yeah. And just the black and white, like, that death is our line. That, like, we're going to start giving a shit about this when, like, everybody starts dying. But up until that point, it's like, what the hell? Why is that our threshold? Even if somebody gets a mild case without any lasting side effects, if they have to miss a whole shitload of work to get better and they're not in a position where they can just take time off, like, you could fuck them financially or... You know, any number of things, it's like at the end of the day, it's really just you can't assume to know anybody else's circumstances, really, and just wear a freaking mask or whatever. Just Yeah, it's not that hard. It's not a big ask. It's really not. But also, you know, I'll speak for myself, and, and you've talked about this as well. Like, our mental health has been all over the place in varying degrees of functionality, and sometimes I'm doing fine and other times I have I have no executive function at all. It's hard to kind of compare that against how things used to be for me because I'm kind of thinking back like, oh, did, was <laughs> how, how much higher functioning was I before this? I don't really remember, but it can be really hard for me to just like start a project when what I want to do is ensure that I'm comfortable. And what I want to do is ensure that, like, I won't be spiraling by the end of the day. Yeah. It's tiring. I think that's, like, an underrated part of it, too. It's just all of this demands so much brain power and so much emotional strength sometimes just to get through a day of this shit. And it's new. All of this is new. And here, here's how pressing it is. We're recording this right now, like, two months before it's going to be released. <laughs> And we're pretty positive that it will still be relevant. <laughs> God, I didn't even think about that until just now. Yeah. All of this shit could be, we could be in a totally different place. We could be, but it's a pretty safe assumption that, you know, we're what, six months into quarantine right now, five months, and another two months doesn't seem to make a difference. Well, even just mentally, imagine if like we crack the code, we figure out what causes panic attacks. and Or I don't know, like I didn't even consider that until just now, but that like... Yeah, how I feel about everything right now and my perspective and philosophy and outlook on everything, at least personally, might be completely irrelevant. I might be just 
miserable by two months from now or extremely happy. I mean, as it relates to, to the pandemic, I hope that we're both doing better. As it relates to the way that we cope with anxiety, I hope that it's better. But as things are, it's, we've just jumped around so much in our functionality over these past five or six months. It seems safe to assume that we'll still be jumping around. Although, you know, fall is a more comfortable time for both of us. Yeah, that's true. It's, it's just a kind of a wild card, really. I try to think about it sometimes, but then it just feels pointless and, and stressful in a lot of ways because I get myself freaked out about what the fall is going to be because I'm afraid that I won't love the stuff that I usually love. And then I, I don't, you know, it's just all sorts of things like that. It's, it's really forcing a, a whole YOLO thing to bring back the term <laughs> <laughs> to invoke 2016 yeah. or whatever that was. It's just like, I really am trying to do that now. Or no, not YOLO. What the fuck does that stand for? You only, what was the, like, there was one of those about live in the moment. That's what I was getting at, not YOLO. Oh, I don't know. I was never young, I think. But it, um, I never felt like I was, dude. But um, I missed all that shit. But yeah, I don't know. I'm like really trying to be present now. Yeah, yeah, I hear that. And of course, the other thing is that like as it starts getting darker earlier. Oh, yeah. As daylight savings time ends, as the dying of the light happens, you know, that that's... That's kind of when people are people are going to have that, um, you know, your sympathetic nervous system is going to be cued the fuck up. <laughs> yeah, no, it is. I'm I'm really not looking forward to that. Like every time September gets a little bit closer, and we we get closer to hitting that line where it becomes fall, or October gets closer and we got to change the clocks. Like that's the phase that I am I am dreading. I think. I, I don't know if I even always liked that particular part, but I think the after will will be okay, or it, whatever it'll be, it will be, because it's like, by that point, we'll be used to whatever, even if it's way shittier. It's like this, like this seemed, if somebody told me in March, whatever, that like this thing was going to be four months of this, I would be distraught. But now it's like, oh, this is what life is. So I kind of have to trust that that will be the case to some extent but like we'll at least acclimate. But that transition freaks me out. That idea that like we're going to actually have to sit there and dial in the light that we're losing. It's like that's not something I want to think about. I mean, we could just not. Yeah. I mean, we just not change our clocks. Because actually, yeah, who gives a shit what time it is anymore? Exactly. <laughs> Who's farming right now? Did you ever hear that there was some politician like a while ago when they were messing with daylight savings or whatever that just changing one of the times or debating whether or not to do so and this congressman I think he just very earnestly got up and and started talking about how like well his district was just concerned that the crops wouldn't be getting as much light you know if we change they'll be losing an hour of sunlight every day and like we're really worried there's going to be some food shortages and stuff what? An elected official. Yeah, he was just somehow glossing over it. Like, we're changing time. Like, the metric. We're, we're changing a clock, not the sun. Yeah, exactly. I was like, <laughs> oh, Jesus. <laughs> yeah. That brings me joy. Uh, I think about that sometimes. I'm probably misquoting it to some extent, but that is the way it exists in my head, and it makes me smile every every fall. <laughs> As it should, my friend. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. 
it's it's an interesting process, especially with something like this, to be learning some of these things in real time. Like us talking about, I don't know if this will be clear listening back, but us talking about this topic today is us sort of fleshing this out. We we had agreed to do this, like to do content warnings, like that part we knew, but we hadn't had this conversation before. Yeah, and I think I mentioned that early on, is that like this was not us debating whether to do it. Yeah, yeah. This was us debating the merits of it. And as I said earlier, you know, the people who would say that content warnings can be harmful uh, are people who reasonably assume that most of the population has easy access to counseling, and some people don't. So that's kind of another reason why we're here, is to debate and disseminate what can be helpful and what's out there in terms of treatments, in terms of different types of legitimate therapy. But yes, we, we had already agreed that to do content warnings. We were just kind of, what can be the benefits of them? And the reasons why people think that they can be detrimental are actually fascinating and yeah. are very valid. That, that's one of my favorite things about this format we're starting to do is like the fact that we can agree on something. Like we can be on completely the same page about like we're going to be doing this or that, but still kind of like it's an opportunity to sit down and figure out why. And you figure out so many other things along the way, like that there are some valid points as to why not, but we still are in a position where this is the right move. So why that? You know, it's just these are kind of interesting rabbit holes to us. And I just I think it makes for a fuller understanding of any topic. And and a topic like this is such a new it's like comparatively new to a lot of mental health topics. Cause I don't remember this really being too much of a thing when I was in high school and stuff, and uh, if it existed at all. So I think it's important to explore them. Yeah, no, I mean, we've had viewer discretion advised forever, but content warnings, trigger warnings are a very new thing. And I think it's really as mental health or the problems associated with mental health become less stigmatized and become more normalized. And, you know, just the acknowledgement that somebody might have been through some experience that will color their interpretation of their listening experience today. You have to be mindful of that. You have to be mindful of every bit of anxiety that you might be putting on somebody. And so that's why it's always helpful to say, just, just in you know normal conversation, if you have something to unpack, if you have some venting to do, the polite thing to do is to ask somebody, like, do you have the mental space right now to hear me about this? And I'm not always great with that but it's a considerate thing to do. And it's really just an extension of empathy. You know, it's just you thinking about what kind of mental space that other person could be in. And are they ready to hear what you have to say, whether it concerns them or not? So the assumption that we're making is that anything that we talk about on this show could directly concern somebody and could directly be linked to a trauma that they have experienced. And, you know, maybe they don't have... PTSD, but you can still have had trauma in your past without it having developed into PTSD. And so, you know, even that is kind of a slippery slope. Yeah, definitely. And that's one of the most interesting parts of the whole issue to me is how those things are being redefined. And I think it's great that they are like that trauma is being separated from PTSD because they're both valid, but they're specific. They're different things. And sometimes I think like when those connotations get crossed, it can be very 
very dangerous because we have our images of what each one is. And if you don't fit into that mold, then you're not going to be taken as seriously. And that's same with these, like with the trigger warnings and, and content warnings and things like that. They get lumped in with censorship and they're not remotely the same thing. I mean, I guess in spirit, in some ways, if you trace them back to their origins, they might be similar, but like they shouldn't be and they don't function the same. It's not about restricting anybody's speech at all. It's just about kind of pausing for a second before you say it. And so I'm just, I'm glad that these conversations are being had on a cultural level. And I just find the thought behind it fascinating too. Yeah, same here. And, you know, what's important to note about what you just said is that we're not restricting speech at all. We're insisting on speech. We're, we're insisting on having these conversations. But there has to be a restrictive nature to our dissemination of this information because of the possible ramifications that it could have on, on any other person's mental health. Do you think, is that a form of censorship? Like contextual censorship or something? No, I don't think so. Because I don't think it, it always, if it was, like I don't think censorship necessarily always has a, it's not always a bad thing. It gets a wicked bad rap all the time, but... There are instances where, like us deciding to pull a punch because it might hurt somebody, that's a valid and good thing to do. Not that we would be, you know, swinging like that anyway, but I mean, you know, there's certain instances, like I've done gigs where like I have absolutely centered myself or been censored, but like it's totally the right thing for that situation. I mean, even I, I just said restrict and like really restrain is maybe what I, what I should have said because what we're using is like prescriptive caution. So we're not really restricting the conversation at all. We're just asking other people to to have restraint themselves in listening if they think that it could be problematic for them. And that's our show. But this topic doesn't quite feel finished. One thing that we realized after taping this was that we didn't disambiguate between content warnings and trigger warnings. And there is quite a big difference. So we'll be back in two weeks with singer-songwriter Ali Zagami to talk about the harmful colloquial usage of the word triggered, as well as the difference between when a content warning is necessary versus when a trigger warning is necessary. Please tune in for that because I think it's a much needed addendum to this conversation. Black Market Therapy is a dead and mellow production. And as always, you can find us on social media for more news on what's coming up on the show. Until next time.